For many people with chronic illness, self-management promotes self-empowerment. It gives people a sense of control over their disease. And people with particularly long-term chronic diseases are sick of the disease controlling their lives. So they feel that they're taking back control through their self-management. Welcome to Talking Health, a podcast where we explore the big health issues facing our communities. On this podcast, you'll hear from some of the world-leading health researchers, community organisations and people with lived experience about the advancements we're making in health to transform the well-being of our communities at each stage of life. I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, the Dean of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. I've spent my career dedicated to supporting people, and particularly women after cancer, to implement sustainable lifestyle changes to get the most out of life. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Professor David Sibrit, the Head of School of Public Health at UTS, and the Director of the Australian Centre for Public and Population Health Research. David is a Professor of Epidemiology and a world-leading health researcher. He has spent most of his career focusing on chronic diseases, particularly stroke and other cardiovascular diseases. Like me, David is a strong advocate for supporting people to implement long-term, sustainable, self-management solutions to address chronic diseases and to help people get the most out of their lives. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today and for being my first guest on this series. Thanks, Debbie. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm really excited about having a chat with you. David, I know that you've just taken over the head of school, what is it, a year ago, the School of Public Health at UTS or the University of Technology, Sydney. How are you enjoying that role? Oh, it's been a wonderful experience to date. It's a big change in, in my career as being a professor, you're largely focusing on your, your own interests. And now that I'm the head of school, it's, it's very much about looking out for the interests of everyone else. But I'm fortunate that Public health is such an interesting and fascinating area, but also I've got a great team of academics and professional staff, so they've made my job really easy today. Well, I know all the feedback we're getting is that you're doing a fabulous job, so well done. Thanks. David, over the past two and a half years, the world has been experiencing a, a global public health crisis. And now more than ever, public health and health research is at the top of many people's minds. As the true impact of the COVID-19 pandemic continues to unravel across the world, what do you think are some of the most important priorities for public health professionals to address right now? I may be biased, but let me begin by saying that I think the pandemic has starkly illustrated the importance of the public health field. In terms of the priorities, I think those working in public health have had to learn about responding to a new disease and how to prevent it through measures such as mask wearing, social distancing, vaccine development. So I think it's vital that we continue to develop a workforce that's agile and ready to take on such challenges in the future. I also think that the population is not equally susceptible to the impacts of COVID. For example, people who are poor, vulnerable, from ethnic minorities, they've suffered much more than the wealthy. So another priority of public health professionals is to reduce such inequalities in health outcomes. Uh, lastly, I think that uh, public health leadership should become the new normal for health systems, health workforce planning, education, policy, and uh, governance. So what I mean by that is that when we are planning health workforces, when we're developing educational programs, creating 
policies or governance around health issues. Public health professionals should not only be involved, but they should also be taking leadership of these activities. And I think that it should be accepted by all that this should be usual practice. Yeah, thanks, David. And you raise an interesting point. I mean, public health has been totally front and centre with the pandemic. And, you know, I know from my own experience, uh, everyone was an armchair epidemiologist (laughs) as all of the numbers came through. And people, you know, we've got students, you know, vying to become epidemiologists who didn't even know what an epidemiologist was. Uh, Public health has been front and centre and not only in Australia, but across the world. How have you and your team adapted to these changing priorities? How are you planning to address these new challenges then? Well, as as you point out, there's certainly a lot of interest in public health in general by the general community, but also potential students. So there's been a lot of interest in our undergraduate programs as well as our postgraduate public health um, degrees right now. So I think in terms of those priorities, those changing priorities. We're fortunate that addressing health inequalities has been a central focus of our school's research and teaching activities over a long period of time. So I think we're well placed to train students in undertaking work with disadvantaged groups in in the community. Also, I think the postgraduate subjects that we teach are now fully online and they're being taught over a a unique six-week period. So this provides ease of access and a better way of learning for our students who might be busy health professionals. And this is really important for healthcare professionals who are frontline health workers. And you think of the amount of stress that they would have been under during the pandemic and even now. So through this approach, we're giving them flexibility in their studies. So I think that's really important to think of where they're placed in their work environment as well as being able to take on studies. Also, we, uh, we regularly engage with our industry and professional partners as well as uh, community groups. So moving forward, I will be asking them for advice about their changing needs during the pandemic. And, and by getting this information, it'll help us modify the content of existing subjects and potentially develop new subjects that are relevant to the pandemic. It's an exciting time for the School of Public Health and, you know, having all of those new subjects, which can be done by anyone around Australia, will be very exciting, particularly with health professionals with busy lives can really incorporate those into their work plan as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And absolutely. And uh, I'll put in a pitch too, Debbie, don't forget international students as well. They can now do it from their home countries in case there's any international listeners. While the pandemic has taken centre stage over the past few years, public health is also a lot more than big health emergencies. We're talking about everyday health and wellbeing of individuals in the community. And while the focus over the past few years has been on the pandemic, many people have been silently managing long-term chronic disease like diabetes, stroke and cancer. David, before we jump into the details, uh, firstly, what is chronic disease? And what does it look like for many people living in our communities today? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question, Debbie. Chronic diseases, uh, long-lasting conditions, usually defined as lasting a year or more. They require ongoing medical attention or they might limit uh, a person's activities of daily living or, or both. If you want some examples, think of uh, arthritis, asthma, back pain, cancer, diabetes, mental health conditions, just to name a few. The reality is living with a chronic condition is hard. Pain and fatigue might um, become a frequent part of a person's day. 
Chronic illnesses can influence your ability to function at work, which may lead to financial difficulties. Household tasks may become impossible to do, thus requiring help from family and friends or professionals. And with all these scenarios, it's not surprising that mental health issues are common among those people with chronic illnesses. Depression and anxiety are highly prevalent in chronic illness, in people with chronic illness. What I found with my research on people with chronic illness is that after a period of time with the illness, they've realised things aren't getting any better. They get to a, a plateau as such, and this might be the case for the rest of their lives. So many people are turning to self-management approaches to help them cope with the chronic illness and to, I guess, have a, a better quality of life. David, you and I are both champions for setting people up with the tools they need to self-manage their chronic disease long-term and get the most out of their lives. However, we all, all have these different perceptions of what self-management looks like and means. What does self-management mean to you, David? Self-management is a process of a person with chronic illness actively engaging in activities that will improve their behaviours and their well-being. It focuses on an individual's role in managing their chronic disease. It, it can include a range of activities needed to effectively manage the emotional and practical issues presented by a chronic illness. Examples might be physical activity, diet, cessation of smoking, meditation, just to name a few. And the beauty of self-management is that it can inspire people to learn more about their condition and to take an active role in their healthcare. And importantly, for many people with chronic illness, self-management promotes self-empowerment. It gives people a sense of control over their disease. And people with, particularly with long-term chronic diseases, are sick of the disease controlling their lives. So they feel that they're taking back control through their self-management. But ultimately, uh, through self-management, it allows people to live the best possible quality of life with their chronic illness. What are some of the impacts of uh, good self-management that you've witnessed over your years as a researcher, you know, for the individuals and their families and, and also the community? Mm, yeah, well, uh, as you said earlier, I've looked at quite a range of chronic diseases over the years. And, and what you find for the individual is that we would typically see improvements in their physical and mental health and their overall improvements in their quality of life. And of course, that's not surprising given that people might be increasing their physical activity, they might be having a better, healthier diet, they may have stopped smoking. So it's not surprising that you can see these big changes in their lives as a result of those self-management practices. For the family, most chronic diseases have a similar effect on the family member that they do on the person with the chronic illness, in that it does lead to psychological and emotional issues. It disrupts leisure activities, it affects interpersonal relationships, financial resources are impacted. So when their loved one, as their quality of life improves through self-management, then so too does the quality of life of the family members as well. In terms of the, the health systems, people who use self-management typically require less use of health services. So they might require less visits with the GP or specialist consultations, there's usually lower hospital admissions or emergency department visits. They also may use less uh, prescription medications as well. So I guess all of this means that there's a saving to governments because there's less health services required. So across the board, 
these huge impacts can be gained through better self-management. So, you know, yeah, what you're saying is uh, people who can self-manage their health behaviours, for example, with exercise and diet and quitting smoking and um, decreasing their stress levels, et cetera, are much more likely to be able to manage their own chronic disease better. Really, it helps the family to be able to uh, manage the chronic disease of their loved one as well. Probably a financial saving in less visits to the um, GP and hospital emergency and less drugs as well. So, you know, that that's a big cost saving to the whole community then. That's great, David, and, and to hear it. Now, you're a world-class researcher in this area, and I know that you've got a new study, which you've just kicked off, called the Allen Study. This is a large long-term cohort study to better understand the needs and challenges of Australians post-stroke who have the stroke which could, it could lead to lots and lots of issues with chronic disease. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about this study? Yeah, well, the, the Allen study, this is a really exciting new project for us. Um, it's a longitudinal cohort study, which means we'll be recruiting thousands of people who have previously had a stroke, and we're going to follow them up over several years or hopefully decades. And this will allow us to comprehensively examine their self-management approaches that they've used as well as their use of health services and medications, et cetera. The main research question, I guess, that we're looking um, at addressing are, what are the unmet needs of people who've had a stroke? And in particular, that they need to use self-management for. What are the decision-making processes and communication around their use of self-management? So how do they make that decision of what self-management to, to use or, or multiple forms of self-management? Is it through help from um, their GP or from family members or the internet? And also once they've made that decision to use self-management, how do they communicate that decision? Are they informing their family and friends? Are they informing their healthcare providers that they're using these, these new self-management approaches? And I guess ultimately it's how effective are the self-management approaches that they're using. The, the study itself came about by the Nancy and Vic Allen Stroke Prevention Fund. Vic cared for his wife, Nancy, after she had a stroke and later bequeathed the funds to set up the project. Nancy and Vic were particularly interested in self-management. They used an array of different approaches to help Nancy better cope with her illness, hence the establishment of, of the fund. And the study will actually begin recruitment at the end of this year. So it's a, it's a really exciting time for us, uh, for, for our team, and I think for the, the school and the faculty moving forward as well. As you know, the wellness model of self-management is something that I've used in our Women's Wellness Research Collaborative um, for, that we've been doing for many years. And I'm really interested to hear from you in how does the wellness model of self-management fit into this study? Self-management has a wellness focus rather than an illness focus. So um, what I mean by that is that an illness model focuses on interventions. They might be clinical interventions like surgery or medications. They could be non-clinical interventions like uh, social workers. These interventions are provided by health professionals who are trained to manage the disease. Whereas when you think of the wellness model, it focuses on an individual undertaking healthy habits to attain better physical and mental health. So a wellness model is proactive instead of reactive, which is very important, particularly when we're looking at stroke and secondary stroke prevention, because people who have strokes are highly likely to have a second or more strokes afterwards. 
um, particularly if they don't change their lifestyles in some way. But also, you know, uh, the wellness model is focusing on a better quality of life. Uh, in other words, thinking about this, it's about action that is taken before symptoms manifest or before symptoms become worse. Wow, this study really has the potential to transform the lives of those people after stroke then. Are there any other things you're hoping to achieve with this study? There are a few things. Firstly, we'd like to investigate how stroke survivors cope with and live with their stroke over time, which will provide really important information um, moving forward in, in um, rehabilitation for people with stroke. We want to look at those rehabilitation services and related medical costs over time, just to see what the impact is financially, because if we make governments aware of the financial impact, then that there could be subsidies down the track, for example, and also investigate the opportunities and challenges around secondary stroke prevention. And particularly, this is where the self-management approaches come into effect here, which will be a major focus of the study. So by gathering all this information, it's gonna allow us to develop policy recommendations around post-stroke rehabilitation, which we can then give to governments and healthcare providers. But in addition to that, the cohort study itself is going to provide an amazing resource and an excellent infrastructure for researchers. And you know a lot about working with large cohort studies, Debbie. If you've got a big study like this, there's a vast array of, of topics that can be explored, and that provides great opportunities for capacity building of PhD students and uh, early career researchers and senior researchers as well. So it's a wonderful infrastructure that we're setting up. But ultimately though, of course, we're hoping that this research will assist people living in the community post-stroke to have a better quality of life. Look, that sounds great and really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing how it all evolves. You know, as they say, ask a busy person and David in another hat, not only as head of school and working on that important stroke study, you're also leading a team of researchers from across the university to evaluate the National Diabetes Services Scheme, the NDSS. Can you tell us a little bit about what this project involves and what are the things you're hoping with this project will address and achieve? Yes, this is uh, another really interesting um, project that I'm working on, Debbie. I'm leading a team that was appointed by Diabetes Australia to conduct a, a comprehensive evaluation of the National Diabetes Services Scheme over a three-year period. For those of you un unfamiliar with the uh, NDSS, it's very much focused around promoting self-management of diabetes. Through the NDSS, it provides support services for practical help and guidance, diabetes health information and resources, and also subsidised diabetes products. So it's it's quite large in its, in its scope. My team will undertake a, an independent, objective evaluation of the the NDSS program services and the subsidised products. And this will support ongoing continuous improvement of the delivery of the NDSS moving into the future. Through this evaluation, we'll be engaging with a variety of stakeholders, including people living with diabetes, their family members or, or carers, health professionals, diabetes organisations, as well as local, state and federal governments. So we're, we're trying to cover all of the key players in, in diabetes care. This is going to take place in form of qualitative interviews and focus groups, quite a large number of interviews and focus groups, analysing data from quantitative surveys and 
other NDSS data collections. And something that I'm really excited about is we're going to analyze some linked data. And so the link, by linked data, what I mean is the NDSS registrant data, which is collated by Diabetes Australia, this is going to be linked to hospital data, emergency department data, uh, Medicare benefits schedule data, pharmaceutical benefits scheme data. So this is going to be a massive complex data set that's going to be provide a, a very clear picture of the impact that the NDSS has had on people with diabetes. Wow, that sounds great. And it sounds like great opportunities for capacity building, uh, you know, new researchers as well as PhD students and postdoc fellows as well. Lots of opportunities there. What will this evaluation mean for people in the community living with diabetes? By evaluating the NDSS, we're hoping to provide essential advice to Diabetes Australia and the Australian government. And that advice will help hopefully improve the effectiveness and cost effectiveness of the NDSS. And I guess this advice is, is ultimately going to enhance the capacity of people with diabetes to understand and self-manage their life with diabetes. Yeah, really, really important for people with diabetes in that area. Well, you know, David, you are making such a fantastic impact on public health, you know, both locally in Sydney, but also across Australia and the world. And, you know, really want to thank you for your amazing work in this area. As we said, public health has become forefront in people's minds post-pandemic, but there's a lot more to public health than, as you've said, than just the pandemic you know, looking at the chronic disease, all those different chronic diseases and the way that you can support people in public health to be able to self-manage and work with those chronic diseases. Um, David, if you were going to sum up what the next year looks like, what are you excited about moving forward as the head of school of public health at UTS? I guess from uh, the school's perspective, uh, I'm really excited about our ongoing teaching particularly of people focusing on public health. We, as I said, we've got some exciting and innovative programs that we're training um, health professionals. And I think, you know, it's, it's great to think that, that those people who we're training are gonna go on and, and then work in this space and, and, you know, maybe assist with COVID moving forward or if you know, down the track um, additional pandemics arise, heaven forbid, <laughs> but uh, more than likely it will happen over time. So I think it's really great to think that we're going to have an impact in that way. But also in terms of research, you know, the, the members of my school, you know, the researchers are doing some fantastic projects around the globe in such diverse areas that, you know, I'm always really impressed by, by the work they're doing. Uh, we've got a large number of PhD students, um, both domestic and international, who, who are also doing some fabulous work. So I'm, I'm really pleased to, to hear about all that research that's been going on. So I think that's really exciting from that front. But um, from a personal side, obviously I'm, in, I'm enjoying seeing the growth in, in the school uh, under my leadership, but also I'm looking forward to those big projects, the Allen study, as well as our evaluation of the NDSS. A lot of things on my plate, but I love doing it. It, it might be a lot of work, but, but it's a real pleasure doing it. So today I've been speaking with Professor David Sibrit from the University of Technology, Sydney. David, thank you so much for being my guest on Talking Health today and for sharing all the important work that you and your team at UTS are doing to improve the health and well-being of people in our communities. You've been listening to Talking Health by the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find us at uts.edu.au.